calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. I want to take a second to tell you about a podcast I think you'll really like, Mayday. No one is prepared for disaster. No one knows exactly how they'll react in a plane crash, an earthquake, or when a lone gunman decides to open fire. On Mayday, you'll hear about the people who had to find out, people whose stories deserve to be heard. Join hosts Maya Nalani and Luke Welland as they tell you about extraordinary people who found themselves in extraordinary circumstances. Listen to Mayday wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Alex Dolan, the creator of The Patron Saint of Suicides. If you like the show and want to support us, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps others find the show, and it makes all of us very happy. So thank you so much for continuing to listen, and back to the show. Hi everybody, this is Alex Dolan, the creator of The Patron Saint of Suicides, and thank you all for listening to season one of the show. I wanted to invite you to come join our Patreon page. So in addition to the 14 full episodes that we're going to have here for season one, we have 15 bonus episodes for supporters on Patreon. Uh, and these will follow some of the characters that you're you're getting to know in season one. We have some new faces. There's an investigation that is happening in these bonus episodes that will fill out the universe a little bit more and give you a little bit more of the story. In addition to the bonus episodes, we have behind-the-scenes content where you can meet some of the cast and crew, get to know some of the backstory of how we created this. Thanks for coming with us on this journey so far, and I hope you want to go even deeper. So it's patreon.com slash PSOS. Again, patreon.com slash PSOS. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of the show. Nicholas Van Orton goes nuts when I come home. And I'm grateful that someone's happy to see me. I usually don't like him jumping all over me because his little jackrabbit toenails scrape my skin. Today I don't mind. Today he jumps high enough to lick my face. And I still tell him he's a good boy. I can't find my phone. The hospital says they don't have it, even though I swear I checked it in. 
I'm forgetting things. I give up the hunt for my phone, and I'm on a burner for now. While Nick circles around me, I check pockets and couch cushions. It's nowhere. I wonder if it fell into the water when David tried to drag me over the bridge. He almost took me with him. Too bad he couldn't hold on. Too bad I have clammy hands. Too bad I had the practice of squirming out of his grip. By now, everyone in the group has found out about Diego and David Cohen. And even though they aren't supposed to know I've been in the hospital for the past 72 hours, I can tell Lynn spilled the beans. Clementa in particular has been hounding me on the burner. I'm so worried about you. Please let me know you're okay, sad emoji. There's no word from Wesley, but I suppose I shouldn't expect anything. I never got back to him when he sent the flowers. Maybe I should have called him. I have a feeling Wesley is done with me. And that would be fair. He was a brief moment of light in my life. But I'm probably not ready for love. I settle in to watch horror movies. Oddly, they make me feel calm. Maybe it's a schadenfreude, or the fact that I can relate to the characters losing their minds. When someone knocks on my door, I'm hopeful. I'm feeling a warm tickle in my stomach. I open the door, and it's someone I want to see. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Detective Victor Blossom returned home very late. When he came in, he could tell Emily was upset with him. He apologized as much as he could, but he told her several times about his schedule, how unpredictable it could be. Emily had a duffel packed, and she was ready to leave the moment he showed up. He couldn't blame her. I think you might want to find a new nanny. I have a big exam tomorrow, and I need to be able to keep my own schedule. I'll try to stay with you until you find someone. But please find someone soon. I'm sorry. I'll miss you, but... I know this hasn't exactly been fair to you. If you change your mind, I'd have you back anytime. You've made my life bearable for the past year. I, um, I need to pay you. It can wait. No, it can't. He wrote out a check for more than he owed her. Not much, but a fair amount for someone on a detective's salary. He handed it to her folded. Thank you for everything, Emily. Let me know if you need a reference or anything else. Blossom sat on the couch with Benjamin, watching a movie. They put on Spirited Away so Blossom could introduce his son to the imagination of Hayao Miyazaki. They settled in, his son eating microwave popcorn and Blossom nursing a straw box of coconut water. As the movie played, he couldn't stop thinking about Haven and imagine what she had gone through. Watching Diego Quezada shoot himself one night, and almost having David Cohen pull her off a bridge, what a thing to live through. Yesterday, the police had released Turo Torres to the surprise of some of his colleagues, and especially to Turo Torres. Even with his confession, they had no real case against him. You see, he tried to keep a watch on Turo, but he knew it would be impossible to effectively protect the man around the clock. Since Diego Quezada's death, Blossom and Gibson had reviewed what they knew about him, whether Diego made a good suspect for the new crimes. 
Diego Hozada had a gun. He had motive, Blossom supposed, but it didn't make sense to him that if Diego was driven to hunt down these men, he would be willing to kill himself. Those actions seemed at odds. Maybe Blossom just didn't understand people. In the movie Spirited Away, the character No-Face appeared for the first time. This was Blossom's favorite character. No-Face was a spirit, a tall, black figure wearing an expressionless mask, something without a real identity, and yet Miyazaki had endowed it with such personality, this neediness. Wesley Pope still seemed like the most likely candidate for these recent killings. He had motive, as much as any of the victims of the 2015 shooting. As the street artist Bishop, he might have had better connections to the young men from Fruitvale, and hence more opportunity to discover the identities and locations of the shooters. Blossom could imagine how easy it would be for him, using that easy, disarming charisma to spark casual conversations in Fruitvale, finding leads over two years, planning his revenge, complete with masks, something so theatrical in its staging, it could only come from an artist. Still, Blossom had no real case against Wesley Pope, and the man's alibi for the night of Sutton Chambers' death seemed solid. Benjamin's reaction to No-Face had evolved from enthralled to slightly afraid. Blossom sidled up closer to his son and wrapped an arm around his shoulder. He thought about Haven the night of March 25th, envisioning her arms wrapped around her son, Milo, trying to nestle against her new boyfriend. Lynn Chambers told Blossom most of the details, and the rest he pieced together from crime scene reports and Haven's own statement back in 2015. Haven Otomo had been involved with a man named David Cohen, an engineer who came from a well-to-do family in New York. They even lived together. However, they split up shortly after their son, Milo, was born. During their time as a couple, the police had received a few domestic disturbance calls. Haven had gone to the hospital. Eventually, she left. David rented a one-bedroom in Piedmont, while Haven stayed in their house in Timascal. A few months later, she met Krishna Delal on a dating app, and the two became inseparable. Among the Christmas gifts exchanged that year, Krishna, or Krish, had purchased two tickets to a Warriors game, scheduled for March 25th on the following year. It would be Milo's ninth birthday, and he wanted to do something special. Blossom imagined how she must have felt, taking pleasure in how his excitement would have mounted as they rode to the train there, as he walked among the crowds in a gigantic arena. What the boy must have felt when the lights dimmed and the teams were called out onto the floor. The rush of the cobalt uniforms up and down the court, the music, the cheerleaders, the dizzying sensory circus, the parental thrill of watching joy grow inside her son. Blossom knew that joy. He imagined how Milo might have glowed in a dream state of unreal happiness. That night, Haven, Krish, and Milo left the game early to avoid the exit rush and get to the train. Blossom wondered if Milo would have protested if he had wanted to stay to the end. Benjamin didn't like missing the end of anything. They would have walked over the long, dirty footbridge that led from the Oracle Arena to the BART station. Ambling among the other fans on the way out of the arena, they waited for the train and shuffled on board. In Haven's statement, she said they found a seat. It was a two-seater, but the three of them stuffed into it. Chris took the aisle and Milo sat on Haven's lap by the window. The train pulled ahead just a few feet, and then it stopped again. They waited for a few seconds, and the train opened its doors again to let in more of the crowd. And that's when a horde stormed into the car. In her statement, Haven said she thought it was a joke. When she saw the mask, they seemed comical to her. Haven assumed these people had come from a tailgate party. She only started to worry when the kids started shouting and shoving. She watched them snatch phones, wallets, and jewelry. 
Chris tried to shield them from the aisle. According to her statement, Haven pushed Milo toward the window, then covered his body with hers to shield him as much as possible. He asked what was happening, and she tried to assure her son that they were just loud and excited fans. Chris and I knew that they hadn't been to the game. Milo probably knew it too, but I think he wanted to believe this was true. Things were happening around him that he didn't understand, and he was trying to make sense of it. Frankly, so were the rest of us. Chris asked her for a wallet and phone and placed them on the seat by the aisle. Part of that was protecting Milo. Part of it was not wanting strange men to touch me. He didn't think much of his own safety. The first gunshot came from just behind her. Sinking down as low as possible with Milo, she constricted tighter around her son and felt him shiver. Chris joined them on the floor, forming an additional barrier to protect the boy. The adults whispered to the child to stay calm. It will be over soon, we kept telling him. I didn't feel a bullet hit me. At least not at first. I felt something, but I was in shock. It took a moment to process. According to the crime scene reports, the bullet entered the back of her chair, then bore through Krishna's heart, then Haven's back into the right half of her rib cage, where it pierced the lung and then exited her chest between the ribs. Milo's head was cradled there. When the bullet passed out of Haven Otamo, it continued its path through the skull of the eight-year-old child. I felt him spasm. I knew something was wrong. I knew he was hurt. I just didn't know how badly yet. I I blacked out. When I came to, the police were standing over me. Milo was in my arms. Some of his forehead was missing. Blossom felt his son staring at him. Benjamin was looking up at him, concerned. Familiar with how his father's jaw clenched when stress consumed him, or maybe disturbed by the intensity of his father's concentration, Blossom gave his son an apologetic smile and kissed the top of his head. With most crimes, he saw clear lines between perpetrators and victims, the good and the bad. On this one, Blossom saw different classifications of victims with varying degrees of culpability, but all of them had suffered, even the shooters. The perps were young men, barely adults, who never intended for a petty crime to escalate into a massacre. Milo Cohen was eight years old when he was shot on that train, the only child that was killed in the shooting. Diego Quezada was trying to defend his fiancée. The rest of the passengers just wanted to get home from a basketball game. It was all a huge clusterfuck. Guilt can be just as damaging as trauma. Blossom wanted all of this to stop. He didn't want to inflict any more pain on any of them. At the end of Spirited Away, the main character, Chihiro, says goodbye to all those she met along the journey, everyone except for one. Benjamin asked his father, why didn't Chihiro say goodbye to No-Face? He was her best friend. Because it's more painful to say goodbye to those we'll miss the most. Blossom picked up a pewter urn from the mantel, engraved with a ring of laurels. It had only been a year since his wife had died. Blossom kissed the top of the urn. Two weeks away, June 19 would mark the year anniversary since his wife, Nava Blossom had died. Assaulted and stabbed by multiple assailants in Golden Gate Park, they hadn't yet found those responsible. Maybe this is why he had a soft spot for the survivors. Just maybe. He felt glimmers of satisfaction when he came across each new body. Victor Blossom took several months off work after he lost Nava, 
and when he returned, he hired Emily to help with Benjamin. His wife's death impacted him in many ways, but more than anything, it altered the way he perceived the world around him. He started seeing people in two categories, those who deserved to be saved and those who did not. Victor Blossom found the cell phone he had taken from Haven Atamo's possessions at the hospital. He couldn't help himself. The phone wasn't evidence, because Haven had committed no crime. He just needed to sate his curiosity. By now, the battery was dead, but he plugged it in using his own charger. Once the device had enough power, Blossom turned it on and stared at the home screen, where a four-character password waited to be entered. M-I-L-O didn't work. But when he reversed the name, O-L-I-M, the phone gave him access to call logs, photos, and texts. He started to scroll through Haven Atomo's calls and messages. He wondered who was worth saving. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. For the first time, I talk about Milo in my set. Being a mother showed me how awful a person I really am. At four weeks into my pregnancy, I started buying maternity clothes just so I could get a seat on Muni. No more standing on the train. I'd put my feet up, take a nap. Why not? Hell, I'd set up picnics on those seats. Now, if you're a mother, you're probably thinking, Haven, are you kidding me? People are rude as fuck. No one gives up a seat on the train anymore. That's because you're all decent people. You were probably polite when you were pregnant. 
The moment I knew I was pregnant, I barge on the train like a kingpin in prison hazing the new fish. You're in my seat, bitch. Marked every time. Being pregnant on public transit was the most gangster I've ever been in my life. When I come off my 10-minute set, I've earned fewer laughs, but more applause. Funny thing, people come to a comedy club to enjoy themselves, and here I am, slowly unloading the grief over my dead boy. I'm surprised I got through it at all. Wesley came to the club. Once I step off the stage, I meet him at the back of the room. I check the time. I only have a minute, but this is important. He looks especially handsome tonight. I'm a sucker for those fedoras. Whoever came up with the etiquette that calls for removing your hat indoors never saw Wesley Pope in his fedoras. Tonight, his hat is bright highlighter orange, and I tell myself he wore it specifically so I could spot him easily in the crowd. That's something. Maybe an indication that he hasn't completely given up on me. When I get to him, he gives me a warm hug. Nice set. I have to go right now, but nice set. He kisses me on the cheek. It's tender, but too platonic for my taste. When he leaves, my fickle heart, which surged in elation, now constricts in despair. He turns before I'm out of earshot. Hey, wanna grab coffee? Yes, I do. I hastily wipe a tear from my cheek, hoping he doesn't see. When I make it back to the green room, there's a leftover sheet cake with my name on it. Before the show, my friends at the club had a welcome back celebration. It made me feel loved, and I called them all assholes for making me cry. It reminds me that, deep down, I do love the people in my life. And for that, I'm grateful. The green room is empty. Because everyone else in tonight's lineup is out watching the stage, studying the other performers. I shut the door and treat myself to another slice of sheet cake. I never found my real phone, so I'm still using the burner. Lynn's tried to call me a few times. When I first met Lynn, we met privately at her house. I shared my story, and she told me the story about how her husband stabbed her on Christmas Eve. We were both survivors. We both hated the men out there who forced us to be survivors. I give Lynn a call back from the sofa. Lynn sounds irritated when she picks up. I've been trying to reach you. I just got off stage. Tell me what's happening. I'm not doing so well. I'm more nervous than usual. There's nothing to be stressed about. You've gotten through this before. How is Clementa doing? We're both a little on edge. It's going to be fine. I consider the irony of me playing therapist to Lynn. This has happened every time. You of all people should know that a panic attack will come and go. But it can't hurt you. You'll be fine. Easy for you to say. For the first time, I hear some resentment in her voice. Just breathe with me for a moment. Come on. 
Let's breathe together. Just listen to my voice. Can you do that for me? Yes. All right. Inhale. And exhale. How about now? Not great. But better? A little. Can you hand over the phone? I check my watch. I have time. I walk over to the green room door and gently depress the lock on the knob. Who is this? It's the voice of a man barely into his adulthood. I recognize it from the night we met. Is this Turo? Yes. I'm Haven. We've met. Turo's hand is likely bloody and also dirty from crawling in the gravel. He must be confused by all of this. He hasn't seen anyone's faces. Together, Lynn, Clementa, and I formed a coven of sorts, and that coven would restore some balance to the world that targeted us. It didn't take much to enlist her help to find the young men who shot me and killed my son. Clementa was easy to persuade as well, although I've been told that I'm gifted at persuasion. Clementa was instrumental in working her school connections to find the shooters. She's a gossip anyway, so it was easy for her. At this moment, both Lynn and Clementa are dressed in Lucha Libre masks. They won't take them off until it's over. Clementa will abandon her somewhere in the vicinity, hidden just enough the police will need to work to find it. It would have been so easy for this to be fully anonymous. But beyond eradicating these boys, we need for someone to know why they were chosen. These boys are not victims, but victimizers. Turo Torres must be in pain. Significant pain. We've come up with a fairly efficient system by now. Admittedly gruesome, but effective. By now, Clementa has temporarily immobilized the young man with a handheld electrical weapon, something that has paralyzed him with 50,000 volts. These might leave residual burn marks, but the condition of his body will be so rough, a medical examiner will probably overlook them. I don't know everything the police know, but the cuts we make to his ankle tendons, quick snips with a fishing knife, may be overlooked as well. Hard to say. Detective Blossom was cagey every time we spoke, and I only drew so much information out of him. With his Achilles tendon severed, Turo can't walk or do much of anything. There's no chance of running away, and he's in too much agony to put up a fight. For good measure, Clementa is pointing a gun at him. We scouted the space before so the ladies won't get caught on camera. The last time we got a little careless, but we were more thorough with our reconnaissance this time. There are no cameras here, just a lonely set of train tracks waiting for a freight to pass over them at roughly 10.17 p.m. If this instance is proceeding like the others, Turo Torres is likely kneeling beside the train tracks. He's probably in so much agony he can barely hold the phone to his ear. Oh, you bitch! 
fuck are you? <laughs> it's nothing I haven't heard before. True. There are worse things that could happen. I can assure you of that. You have a family at home. Parents, Joseph and Paula. Sister, Gianna. She's two years younger than you. Pretty, too. She's 19, the age you were when you shot up our train. He doesn't say anything, but I can hear how fast his breathing has become. And I imagine his heart throbbing with a fear he's never felt. You don't know how many of us there are, but there are a lot. This is a lie, but it helps when they believe there's a whole movement behind us. Some of us are at your house right now. Let me text you a photo. I sent Turo a photo of the single-family stucco house where his family lives. It was taken a few nights ago by Clementa, but I'm sure it gets the point across. I give him a few seconds to look. Turo? Are you still with me? Turo, I need to hear from you. I'm here. I don't think I need to tell you what the alternative is. You can choose yourself, or your family. If you choose yourself, your family will be massacred, messily, and then we'll kill you anyway. And we'll do it more slowly and more painfully. Give me a minute to think. He's trying to stall, but the train is coming. You don't have a minute, Turo. You have just as much time as you gave all of us two years ago. There is no negotiation. If that train passes and you're still alive, we will raid your house. I will make sure you can hear your family die. Then we will kill you with a level of pain you truly can't imagine. His reality is sinking in. And he goes from shock and denial to resignation. Turo starts to sob. In this moment, the way he wails, I am reminded that no matter how hardened the person, there's always a fragility waiting to be unearthed. Turo, I have good news. What? He's not defiant anymore. He's lost his will. I will stay with you all the way. I will talk you through it. You won't be alone, Turo. Just start moving. Stay with me, Turo. We'll get through this. Why? Why are you doing this? Because you killed my child, Turo. And you killed my man. You killed the greatest loves of my life. And you caused so much suffering. Come on, Turo. You can do it. You're almost there. I can hear it. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That's a small step. It's a healthy step. But it's a small step. There's something more important than being sorry. What? Being accountable. You're an adult now, Turo. And part of that responsibility is being accountable for your actions. 
and facing that accountability like an adult. Now, how close are you to the tracks? Are you between the rails? No. It's the last thing you need to do, Turo. Just throw your knee over the rail, and then the other. You cut my legs. I can't move them. You can do this, Turo. Come on. I can't see him. But I trust Lynn and Clementa have instructed him the way they have the others. At this point, Turo is probably moving the way a robot responds to programmed commands. Having lost his free will, he awaits instructions. Like the rest of us, he just wants this to end. It will be over soon, Turo. I hesitate in telling him the next part, but hope this gives him a modicum of comfort. You will be the last one. It all stops after tonight. You were the final shooter on that train. You were the last one who took a life. None of your friends will be hurt. Your family will be safe. I don't know if this makes him feel better to know that his will be the final act in a spree of violence, or if it will make him feel that much worse to be the last one, the one who might have gotten away. But I tell him, because I'm grateful tonight. Grateful that this will finally stop. There's nothing else for you to do. There are no decisions to make, and when it comes, it will be so quick, so painless, and you won't feel a thing. Just a rush of wind, and your soul will leave your body unencumbered. For the first time in two years, you'll be genuinely free. Stay with me, Turo. You're an adult now. Face your destiny like a man. Be proud in the way you exit this life. It's how people will remember you. Stay with me, and we'll get through this together. I imagine as the train rushes at him, Turo Torres has risen as much as he can, chin lifted to face the rush of steel. If he's like some of the others, he might fold his hands and pray. You never know how religious someone is until he gets to the end of his life. Maybe it isn't a prayer, but a final attempt at a defensive posture, as if holding his arms up around his face might deflect the blow of the oncoming steel. To the witness who was afforded a glance of Turo before his body disintegrates, it might look like he is praying. Maybe he is. That's it. You're doing great. Atonement makes us human, makes us strong, and gives us hope. You are about to atone for all of the bad things you've ever done, and you will become a pure spirit. It will be beautiful, Turo. I assure you of that. All of your sins, cleansed in a gust of wind. That's all it is, Turo. A gust of wind that will carry you to a better place. Let's wait for it together. It's close. 
Someone has probably spotted Turo on the tracks and is pulling the horn so he can save himself. At this distance, the train won't be able to stop in time. Next come the brakes. I imagine the sparks flying off of the rails, but it's too late. I breathe with Turo. He's hyperventilating and his heart must be ready to explode. Soon, I can't hear Turo's breathing over the grinding of steel. The Patron Saint of Suicides was written and created by Alex Dolan, produced by Audio Media, starring Elisa Park as Haven Otomo, Rob Schwab as Victor Blossom, Richie Amos as the narrator, Georgia McKenzie as Zoe Gibson, also starring Marcus Sally, A.J. Breckles, Louise Bermudez, Jonah Loon, Mike Queller, Blocker, Ariana Abraham, Kyle Stroud, Jason Arnold, Vince DeJohnny, Paul Gagneau, Lily Curta, Andrea Smith, Andre Johnson, Eric Howell, Rose Albello, Stuart Moyer, Raj Jawa, C.B. Droge, Ray Snoke, Ali Goodell, Scott Johnson, Stephanie Hazen, Enrique Garnica, Blythe Renee, and Chroma Sikora. For more Patron Saint of Suicides content, head to patreon.com slash PSOS. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.